Let me just pray. Lord, we're celebrating your grace as your people, um, just as we've heard it so powerfully expressed and demonstrated in, in Ruth's life. We're celebrating that. We're celebrating that there's nothing we could do that would cause you to love us more. There's nothing we could do that would cause you to shut the door. You've done it all through your son for us to come. And we're coming here. Some of us don't even know why we're here, but we're here. Others of us know exactly why we're here, because you've changed our hearts and we love you. We want to live for you. We want to grow to be more like your son. So meet us in this place with all the different things on our hearts and minds, some really heavy things, weighty things that could distract us from hearing you and meeting with you. And may your spirit just fall upon us. Use your word, my mouth, to communicate your truth to your people, that your grace might continue to flow. In Christ's name, amen. How many of you grew up camping? Any campers out there? I just love the fact that the Myfairs were a camping family. And probably the great memories I have are camping at Peninsula State Park up in Door County. Love that place. We'd go there three times a year. But when I think about the My Fair family camping experiences, there was none like the one we had in 1963 when we took six weeks to go from Evanston, Illinois to the coast of California and back. All six of us in the uh, 1955 Olds 98. That's a six-seater. And we filled them all. And we're towing this little trailer with all of our gear in it. And just about every night, we were putting up the tent in some other place. And we made it from the Black Hills. We made it over to the Tetons, to Yellowstone, back in the days when the bears would still meet you there at the entrance to the park. We kept on going to Glacier National Park and to Crater Lake. And we were down in the Redwoods and drove through that big El President or whatever that tree was that you could drive through, that huge sequoia. We made it to Yosemite and then up in the Rockies and back. My dad says, the trip only cost us $300 for gas. That's pretty amazing. And, and I remember it just being a great trip. And, but we spent a lot of time in the car. And as a young boy, you're trying to figure out, what do you do? I got three sisters and you know, you kind of got the wiggles, and so you sleep as much as you can because you figure out the trip goes faster when you sleep. And then, and then you figure out, you know, there's games you want to just play, and so you play these imaginary games, and, and then you play the car bingo games. And, you know, there's, there, there's only so many things you can see in Montana, and pretty soon, the car, you know, there's nothing on the card in Montana. And so <laughs> you put that away, and then you start fidgeting some more, and your sister starts saying, hey, 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 this is the line. This is my side. And so you're, you know, and then after a while, you start kind of getting into it. And then, all of a sudden, you knew you were in trouble when my dad, the paragon of patience, would give that Swiss German haroof. Haroof means cut it out. That's enough. And when you heard haroof, you better do two things quick. One, you might have to duck because... (laughs) 
that right hand just may leave the steering wheel and enter the back seat of the car, if you know what I mean. The second is, you better get your behavior in line here. And you know, as a kid, I didn't appreciate that my dad didn't really have room for the kids fighting. I didn't quite understand that as a kid until I became a father of five. And I understand how great it is, like last weekend when the girls are home from college and all five of them are together and they're having fun. Man, is that great. I love that. And I find out that the reason we like that, whether we're a kid who desires that or whether we're a parent who longs for that, is because that's the heart of our Father, our Heavenly Father. In fact, he says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, when my children live together in unity. And that's where we're going here as we turn the page from the first three chapters of our identity in Christ to now chapter 4, verse 1, to our mission in Christ. And the amazing thing is, that's exactly where he goes. He says, okay, now here's where we're going to take who you are in Christ, and we're going to live it out in day-to-day shoe leather. And what I want to talk to you about first is your unity together as my children. So take your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. I think you can find that on page 828. If you forgot a Bible, don't have one, grab one from the rack in front of you. And please consider a gift if you don't have a Bible. Just take that home with you. We'd love for you to have that. Now let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now, he mentions he's a prisoner. Now, it's a second time. If you look back to chapter 3, verse 1, he's already said that he's a prisoner. Why is he reminding them again that he's in prison as a, and he's a prisoner of the Lord? Not of Nero, not of Rome, but he's a prisoner of the Lord. I, I think it's like this. Hey, you guys. The things that I'm talking about are so important that I'm suffering for these things. In fact, I'm in jail. I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his good news, which is good news not just for my people, the Jews, but for all people, Jews and Gentiles. And so listen up. It's really important. And he goes on to say, I urge you to live. Maybe your translation has walk. Literally, the word there in the original languages is the word walk. And that word is peppered throughout this letter. You'll find it in verse 2 of chapter 2, where he says, We used to walk in our sins. Or now that we've been made alive, he says in chapter 2, verse 10, we, we walk in these good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Here he says we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In, in chapter 4, verse 17, he says... We're not to walk as those who don't know Christ, the Gentiles. That's not to be the way we live. Rather, we're to imitate God, chapter 5, verse 1. We're to walk in love. In verse 8, it's not up on the screen. He says, we're to walk as children of the light. And then he uses it one last time in verse 15. We're to walk in wisdom. And, and so it's a, it's a word that he keeps going back to, and especially you'll note it, it's the second half as we go to mission, walking it out our calling in Christ in all of life, in all the relationships we have with each other in the church, as husbands and wives, parents and children, children and parents, in the workplace, when he talks about slaves and masters, and then in the world and in the battle, the Christian battle, as we fight against the enemy of our souls. 
So he's talking about walking, and he says, this is how our walk should be characterized. You see the word? Worthy. That's a great word. Our walk needs to be worthy of the calling we've received. And when you see that word worthy, I want you to picture a scale. And that worthy means to bring it up to be equal to. So he's saying you've got your calling on one side and your conduct or your living on the other side, and they need to be in balance. And what is our calling? Well, he's been talking about it. Our calling is from chapters 1 through 3 that we're chosen, that we're adopted as his children, that we're redeemed and, and forgiven. We've been made alive, given new life in Christ. We've been reconciled to God and to each other, and, and we're called his masterpieces. And then it'll go on later in chapter 2 and says, and, and we're his living temple. This is all part of our identity in Christ, our calling. And he says, what I want you to do is live a life that measures up that's in balance with your calling. Not out of balance, but in balance. So he says, this is what it's like then to live a life that measures up. And he's going to flesh it out. In verses 2 through 6, he's going to say, a life that measures up, a life that is worthy, preserves the church's unity. Doesn't create it, but preserves it. And then he's going to go on in verses 7 through 16 to say, a life that measures up, a life that is worthy of the calling we receive is a life that promotes the growth, the maturity of God's church. So look now at verses 2 through 6 and as, he, as he starts to talk about preserving the unity. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So the first thing we note is verses 4 through 6 describes our unity. But just imagine if somebody came and visited us and we would ask them, having observed us, maybe they're from another country, you've been around us for a month now, what would you say unites us in this place? Would they say, well, on careful observation, I'd say it seems to be language. You all speak the same language. Seems to be color and race. Wondering if it's politics or maybe education or or maybe it's your preferences of of dress and style of worship. Perhaps it's your socioeconomic status. Paul says it's none of those things. Those aren't the things that unite us. The things that unite us is the sevenfold unity that he describes in verses 4 through 6. You see it? One body. This body. The church which we're a part of. The one body isn't just Door Creek. We're a part of the bigger body. We're an outpost of God's kingdom here on the east side of Madison. One body. And then he goes on to talk about not just one body, but one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We have one hope through Christ for this life and the next. We have one Lord, one master. It's Jesus. One faith. The faith that is recorded for us in his word, the teachings of God. We have one baptism, not the baptism of water, but the baptism of the Spirit. 
We enter into relationship with Christ through his spirit now resident in our life. And then finally, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. He says, this is our unity, and it's a perfect unity. That number seven is always this number of perfection. It's a perfect unity. It's a unity you don't have to create. It's a unity you already have. And it's rooted in God, a triune God, one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying, rooted in the Godhead, rooted in the work and the grace of Christ where he makes us alive and gives us a new hope. He says, that's the unity. And he says in verse 3, so make every effort to keep the unity. And so the question is, how do you preserve this unity? How do you preserve it? Well, he says you preserve it through through character, Christ-like character, and through commitment. The character is mentioned in verse 2. Do you see it? Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. So how are we going to make every effort, not some effort, but this is, a, this is an ongoing, serious commitment. How are we going to commit ourselves to preserving the unity by keeping the bond of peace? It's by pursuing Christ-like character, like humility. What is humility? Humility is that one virtue that the minute you think you have it, whoops, there it goes, you lost it. It's seeing ourselves as God sees us. It means we live at the foot and constantly in the shadow of the cross. So I'm always seeing myself as God sees me. At the cross, I see myself as a sinner. At the cross, I see myself as an object of his love and affection. He's adopted me as a son. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. And I am his masterpiece. I see it all clearly at the cross. And it's that humility that is so necessary to preserve unity. Because if I don't have humility, you know what I have? I have pride. And pride is a cancer in this body. This attitude, this this feeling that's conveyed, it would never be conveyed in words. We're way too sophisticated for that. We would never say, I'm better than you guys. I don't need you guys. I got the full package from the Lord. I'm self-sufficient. We never say that, but we might act like that. And so it's complete humility in all of life, in all of my relationships with every one of my brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter what their story is. And then there's gentleness that comes alongside of humility. Gentleness is not weakness. It's strength under control that allows me to deal with the weaknesses that exist in the body of Christ. The very fact that he calls us to these virtues is hugely informing about who we are. We are a people that aren't there yet. We're fragile. The work of Christ isn't yet complete in my life. There's rough edges. There's weaknesses. And it's going to force you to be gentle with me. It's going to force you to be patient with me. That's where he goes next. Be patient. It's going to force you to bear with me in love. That word patience is the the notion of quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. It's, It's the picture of the old dog enduring the young pup that always wants to play. 
patient. But forbearance has everything to do with forgiveness. That's what he talks about in Colossians 3.13 when he talks about bearing with one another and forgiving each other for the grievances you've suffered and forgive as you've been forgiven by Jesus. Bearing with one another in love means we forgive each other because we've been forgiven. And this is the stuff, humility and gentleness and patience and a forbearing, forgiving spirit that preserves the unity of Christ's body. So when you're like that, when I'm like that, you know what it means? It means that we're a person who's quick to acknowledge because there's humility in our life, I was wrong. I need to ask you to forgive me, brother. We're going to be a person who's going to be quick then to forgive and and committed to to the process of forgiveness because it's never a one-time deal, is it? The deep wounds of our life, they come back. The enemy loves to bring them back. Hey, hey, nurse this a little more. Or sometimes we like to leverage it in those relationships to say, I'm really glad you hurt me. I mean, it really hurt. But man, am I going to use this against you for years? We're quick to forgive. We're committed to ongoing forgiveness. But we're slow. We're so slow to give up on each other, the body of Christ. So he says, a life that is worthy, a life that measures up to this weighty calling that we have is a life that preserves the unity. Now look down at verse 7. Because where he goes next is promoting the church's maturity or the church's growth. Look at verses 7 through 10. But to each one, and when you see that word but, you know, it's, it's an adversative here. He's saying something different. He's just talked about our sevenfold unity, and now he's going from our unity, and he's going to talk about our diversity. In fact, that's a common thing when the Scriptures talk about the body of Christ, one body made up of many parts. This unity, but each one. To each one, grace has been given. And the grace he's talking about are the gifts that Christ has given us through his Spirit. So he says in verse 7, But to each one of us, grace has been given. As Christ apportioned it, this is why it says, and you may notice here in your Bibles, that the the scripture here in 8 is indented. That, That just means it's an Old Testament quotation. And if you got a little letter there, it might say on the bottom of the page where it's from. Psalm 68, 18. So he's now quoting Psalm 68, 18 to talk about Christ giving to each one of us grace or gifts. And so he says, quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now he's commenting on that verse in Psalm 68, following in verses 9 and 10. What does he ascended mean? What does it mean that Jesus ascended? And by the way, that's what he did 40 days after the resurrection. He ascended into heaven. The disciples saw him go right up, and the angels said, he's coming back in the same way that he's left. Go now and do his work. He ascended into heaven. What does that mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. What is that? Well, the one who ascended Christ is the same one who descended, who came at Christmas, was born in the flesh, 
lived for 33 years on this life. That's the one we're talking about. He came, he ascended. And he who ascended, he who descended, verse 10, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And the picture here that he's painting, that he wants us to get, that I want you to get, is the ascension, is Christ's victory. His ascension from the dead, the resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. The picture here is of a conqueror coming back with a train of captives that he's captured in battle. They're coming back, and with the captives, there's all the loot, there's all the spoil that he's taken, plundered from the other country. And as this conquering king comes back, what he would often do is not just display his might by parading those he's captured, but 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 also bestow his grace, his benevolence in sharing the wealth and giving gifts. And so you say, that's what Jesus did. When he ascended on high, he led captives in a train. He was a conqueror and he's given gifts after the ascension. When did that happen in church history? Acts 2 says it happened on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Pentecost. The Passover was celebrated. That was the weekend Christ was crucified. There was an outpouring of the Spirit. The Pentecost feast was actually the the feast of first fruits. And so how fitting that the Spirit, remember how we read back in chapter 1, this deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. It's this, this down payment of more to come. How fitting that on the feast of Pentecost, first fruits, the Spirit's poured out on his followers. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit fell like flaming tongues on his followers. It didn't say there really were flaming tongues, but the only thing I can say is it was like that. And when the Spirit rested on those people, they could speak in different languages so that all the people that came to Jerusalem for that festival that spoke many different languages heard the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed to his followers. That's when the gifts were given. And so how is it that we promote the church's growth and maturity? It's by receiving Christ's grace, by receiving Christ's gifts. And we note that those gifts first flow to the leaders in the church. Look at verse 11 through 13. It was he now, Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So we receive these gifts, and now we see that we're to use these gifts. Because note, the leaders don't monopolize ministry, but they multiply. These apostles and prophets, the evangelists and the pastor teachers are to look at verse 12. They're to prepare God's people for works of service. That means they're to equip them and then release them to do ministry. So the proper understanding of a leader in the church, a pastor in the church, is not to monopolize ministries. Hey, you guys, look, 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 look at me. I'll do it for you. Just, just watch. No, 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 no. It's for the leaders to prepare. And that word prepare was a medical word that described the preparation involved in setting a broken bone so that it would heal and be useful for the body's service, okay? And so what does it look like to have a body 
that's prepared. What does it look like for you to be prepared? It means that things are lined up in your life so that you're useful. What are those things? Your mind and your heart and your gifts and your passions and your energies and your resources so that you can do God's work in God's way, character for God's glory. And it happens in relationship around the word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit, bathed in prayer where you're mentoring and you're teaching and you're doing ministry together. That's what the leaders are to do. And so I want you to note Christ's pattern here for how the church grows. We're to receive his grace, and as we get his grace, we are now to use his grace, these gifts. And how it works is the leaders now multiply the members so that they know how to use their gifts in ministry, and they're unleashed and released out around this place and the community and the far reaches of the world to accomplish his purposes. That's how it's done. And the result is there is unity. I don't, I don't know if you noticed it, but there it is in verse 13. This built-up body is built up, and that's why we do that, and it's until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The reason we're using our gifts, and each one of us has them, according to this passage, verse 7, is so the body will grow stronger, so it'll grow to be more like Christ, so that we'll be better positioned and able to do the work of Christ here and everywhere. And the result of this strong body is, it looks like this. It's united, united in the faith, the scriptures, united in our knowledge of the Son of God, united in Christ. It's united, but it's not just united. It's, there's maturity here, isn't there? Not just unity. There's this attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And he goes on in verses 14 through 16 to talk about that. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, that's you and me, grows and builds itself up in love. How? As each part does its work. And so he says, all right, you want to promote the maturity of the body? Then here's what it's going to take. You're going to have to receive the grace And now you're going to have to dispense it. You're going to have to use that grace. You're going to have to use the gifts that Christ has given you through his spirit to now help other people grow and help this body grow. And when it grows, there's unity. And when it grows, there's maturity. We're no longer infants. There's maturity. And there's stability. No longer tossed to and fro, like a boat on the high seas. No, we're grounded. The the reason I want you to open the word with me and look at it in the text, the reason I want you to see it up here on the slides is because you need to know what God says 
not what I say. And you need to measure everything I say against God's word. And so that means this week, if you're listening to somebody on the TV, you're listening to somebody on, on um, the radio, you're downloading some podcasts, you're filtering it through your mind because what happened and what he was nervous of would be that the false teachers would come and say, it's not just about Jesus. You need something more. And so they derail you from Christ and then from Christ's mission. He says, a strong church isn't going to be derailed. There's maturity and there's stability. And finally, there's loving service. We're truthing it in love. We're speaking truth to each other in love. Truth without love It's brutal, brutal honesty. That's not what it is. In love without truth, hypocrisy. That's not what it is. It's balanced, truthing it in love, building up the body in love. One of the things the scriptures continue to talk about as it talks about the gifts is always using them in love. So Jesus is saying, it's not just that you do it, but that you do it with the right heart in love. And I don't know if you noticed it, but I said it a couple of times, so I hope you did. But he says it's going to grow as each part does its work. As each part does its work. Maybe you're like what Craig said before. I never knew how God could use an IT guy. Maybe you're saying, how could God use me here at Door Creek? Well, I can't answer that right now, but I can answer this. I know he can. I know he wants to. And I know what he's calling us to is each one of us does our part as we move out in the mission. And I don't know if it surprises you, but it sure surprises me that when he starts moving out in mission, he's not talking about our families. He's not talking yet about my relationship with my wife and my kids. He's not talking yet about the workplace. He's not talking about evangelism. Right now he's talking about us and the importance of unity. And our part is to preserve that unity. So I got to ask myself, are my attitudes and my commitments in this place, are yours contributing to the preservation of the unity of Christ's body? And second, am I watching or am I working to build this place up to become all that we need to be in Christ to do all that he calls us to do for Christ. There's no room for the spectator in the New Testament's understanding of the church. We are an incomplete, disabled body when you shelve your gifts and your time. They're not trophies to admire. They're tools to build his body that we might reach the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful reminder in your word that we are one. We're one in Christ. Help us, Lord, to have more and more of Christ, more power, more love as we sing, more Christ-likeness, more humility, more forgiveness in this place. That as people see how we do life together, they they see it's real. They believe, Lord, that 
that maybe a relationship with you and peace with you is possible because they see us living in right relationship with each other. And Lord, I just pray that you'd move people off the curb to join this parade of joining you as your sons and your daughters to reach a world that doesn't know you, that desperately needs you. And I pray, Lord, we would do it in such a way that people continually are being released and sent out ministry and mission and empowered to do so by your spirit and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.